I'm going to go ask directions to our next huge embarrassing failure. You've got mail. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, we're talking about things that don't exist anymore. Okay, maybe they exist, but they're obsolete, or we don't use them, or they literally don't exist anymore. That's one of the things that I really wanted to do with this podcast. I wanted to talk about things that I grew up with, things that I experienced in my life, things that happened to me, or things that I dealt with. Today's episode is about stuff that was around when I was growing up and through my young adult life, and just isn't anymore. Today's episode is inspired by a couple of things. We were talking in the stream this week about the Y2K panic. Now, some of you guys are too young to know what that was, but when 1998-1999 rolled around, there was a huge panic, not just in the U.S., but really throughout the world, because everybody was worried about whether the computers would roll over from 1999 to the year 2000. When you're programming things in the 70s and the 80s, you're not thinking to the year 2000. You just figure the numbers will keep adding. But that was a huge deal. And for a good year to 18 months, people were in a panic. Would the banks collapse? Would the stock market close? Would airplanes crash because the computer air traffic control systems wouldn't work anymore? And I know there was a lot of behind-the-scenes work to make sure that didn't happen. And I know that it was being taken care of. But nobody let those facts get in the way of a good story. Y2K panic was something that was a big thing years ago. And now, of course, barely anybody remembers it. And the other thing that inspired this episode was me talking about encyclopedias in last week's episode. We all know what Wikipedia is. It's basically an internet encyclopedia. All of the information you could want about anything is on Wikipedia. But before the internet was a thing, before it was the go-to source for all information, if you wanted to get information about something, you wanted to do a research paper on the Battle of Gettysburg, you wanted to find out about killer whales, you would have to go to the library or to your grandmother's house and pull out the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia was comprised of something like 26 or 30 volumes of books that covered every topic. Libraries always had encyclopedias. If you watch some old movies, they used to have encyclopedia salesmen go door-to-door and try to sell you on a volume. If you buy the volume V for $10, you can buy the rest of the volumes for $15 a piece every month. And so after two years, you'd finally have a full set of encyclopedias. But there aren't encyclopedias anymore. We don't need them. You want to do your report on killer whales? You type killer whales into your Google search bar. So those two topics inspired me to dig into my memory banks and try to remember some of the stuff that I grew up with. And we've talked a little about this in other episodes, but this is an episode that's going to be devoted entirely to things that used to be just everyday things, just a fact of life, that simply aren't anymore. One of the first ones that came to mind had to do with computers. Now, if you were getting on the internet back in the early 2000s, the late 1990s, there was no cable connection. There was no Wi-Fi. The only way you could get online was to dial in with your telephone, put your phone in a little jack, and wait for the connection. And when we got on the internet, this is what we heard. And yes, we literally heard this. You heard the dial-up. You heard the connection. Static. And the longer this static went on, the greater your chances that your connection wouldn't go through.
And that was such a familiar sound to us when we were signing onto the computer. If we wanted to go online, this is what we had to deal with. The biggest service provider back in the day, America Online, AOL. And of course, as soon as you signed into your AOL account, you'd always wait for that message. You've got mail. That meant that somebody had emailed you something and you had something to look forward to in addition to just getting online. Nowadays, dial-up modem, that whole dial-up sequence, that's like a nightmare story from long ago. Doesn't happen anymore. But that's one of the more modern things that was ubiquitous for a short period of time and then it just disappeared once we figured out how to connect more quickly. But there's some stuff from way back. Well, way back for me. For many of you, this is ancient history. I want you to think about your car for a second. This is something we took for granted when I was a kid. When I first started driving cars, there were two seats in the car, the front seat and the back seat. And each of those seats was a bench seat. By that, I mean it was a flat cushion all the way across that you sat on. And then the back of the seat was a flat cushion all the way across that you leaned against. There was no bucket seats. There was no contours in the seats. It was just a bench, like a park bench, except cushioned and bolted to the floor of your car. You might find a bench seat in the back of certain vehicles these days, like minivans, although the bench seats are not really bench seats. They have the little contours where you're supposed to put your butts and sit down. But the true bench seats from back in the day, they don't exist anymore. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But when I was growing up, you could fit three across in the front. There was no center console. There was no cup holders. There was no storage bin. There was just a bench seat with three people sitting across the front, three people, sometimes four, maybe even five, sitting across the back. That's just the way it was. You don't see bench seats in cars anymore. The other thing you don't see in cars? Ashtrays. Ashtrays were a fixture in cars when I was growing up because everybody smoked. You couldn't even imagine a car without an ashtray. It was just a fixture. It was like a doorknob on a door. You had an ashtray in your car. And if you weren't a smoker, you used the ashtray to store your loose change. Everybody did that. That's where I kept my toll money. If I had to cross a toll bridge, I'd pull the quarters out of the ashtray. That's where they were. Between loose change and a pack of gum, that's what I used my ashtray for. But everybody used them because everybody had them. And if you were with a smoker, that ashtray would fill up with cigarette butts and the car would reek. It would reek. You could always tell a smoker's car. But they stopped putting ashtrays as a regular feature in cars within the past 20 years or so. Try to find a car made after the year 2000 with an ashtray as standard equipment. Ashtrays were also a fixture in houses. Here's what you should do. Go Google ashtrays. It sounds like a weird thing to Google, but if you look up some of the fancy ashtrays they used to have in houses, they would make an ashtray on a pedestal with a little lid on it. They would make an ashtray with a little sand where you would put your cigarette out. Every tourist destination you went to, you could buy an ashtray. Now it's shot glasses and magnets. Shot glasses and magnets. But years ago, you would get an ashtray with whatever destination you went printed around the rim of the ashtray or sometimes in the middle of the ashtray. And that's because smoking was so prevalent in society. Just watch some of the old TV shows, some of the old movies. Everybody smoked, so everybody needed ashtrays. You kept an ashtray in your house even if you didn't smoke because you would have guests who came over and smoked. And nobody really thought about it. People would just light up in your house. Some people would ask, do you mind if I smoke? And you could say yes, but usually you expected people to come over and smoke. My parents always told people don't smoke in the house. But most everybody I knew either allowed smoking in the house or were smokers themselves. And that leads to the other thing that doesn't exist anymore. Lighters. Yes, you can go to the drugstore, the 7-Eleven, the Wawa. You can pick up those disposable lighters. 
But years ago, they used to have fancy tabletop lighters. Some were small that would fit in your hand, maybe in the shape of a pineapple, or maybe it was a statue and you'd flip the head back and underneath the head would be the lighter and you'd click it and light people's cigarettes with it. The lighter was kind of a desk decoration. You would have a fancy lighter on your desk. You'd also have the pocket Zippo that you'd carry around. But those fancy decorative lighters, those were a thing. And you'd always have a lighter around for the smokers who would come over and fill up your ashtrays. So yeah, smoking had a huge influence on cars because of the ashtrays, houses because you always wanted an ashtray, and the lighter business because everybody needed lighters. You didn't want to ever be a bad host and not be able to light your guest's cigarette. Something else that doesn't exist. Now, this is a weird little one. This was really prevalent in the 70s and the 80s. There used to be a section in the newspaper where you could take out what was called a personal ad. It was always in the classified ad section. Classified ads, for those who don't know, because I know newspapers are not nearly as prevalent as they used to be. But the classified ad section would have job openings, real estate listings, household items for sale. But there was a section that developed in the 70s and the 80s for personal ads. And that's where people would advertise looking for dates or mates. That's where we developed the codes. Single white male would be SWM, looking for single white female, SWF, for long walks on the beach, or whatever else you wanted to put in there. And people would advertise for their dates in the newspaper. Now they do it on Craigslist or various other places on the internet. But the personal ads section in the newspaper was a huge business. By the way, one of the reasons that they developed those abbreviations, SWM, SWF, is because the newspapers would charge you per word for the classified ads that you put in. So, single white male was three words. SWM is only considered one because it's three initials next to each other in one block. So, it's only one word. That's why those codes still persist to this day. Another thing that doesn't exist, this is going to be weird for some people because they may have never even seen one, is a road map. Years ago, if you wanted to get around, take a trip from New Jersey to South Carolina, you would go buy a road map or two or three because you needed a road map for every state because you needed to see the roads so you knew which way you were going. Nowadays, you can plug in your home address, plug in your destination address, and have Alexa tell you all about it as you're driving along. Turn left in 500 feet. There was none of that when I was growing up. My dad had a stash of road maps like you wouldn't believe. Every state we went to, we got a road map. The other thing that you could get if you were a member of AAA was what was called a triptych. And the triptych is a road map guidebook that AAA would put together. And they would essentially copy pieces of the road maps that you could get, but only with the relevant sections of the highway in this little booklet that they would prepare for you. And they would highlight the route for you on this excerpted roadmap. And each page would have whatever directions you needed for that particular portion of the trip. But you had to be a member of AAA to get one. And my parents weren't always members of AAA. Occasionally, we would get a trip tick. But most of the time, we would rely on the roadmap. Now, if you've never seen a roadmap, they weren't really huge in their folded-up state about the size of a slightly tall paperback book. But what you would have to do is unfold it, oftentimes on the hood of your car as you're trying to find out, where was that exit? And so you'd look on the road map and figure out where Route 80 branched off into Route 81 and what exit you were looking for and what town you were near. And the person in the passenger seat would always be the navigator, having that road map spread out across their lap. Okay, you're looking for exit 17. 
And reading a roadmap was a skill that you had to develop if you were taking any long trips anywhere because you needed to know where you were going. But that skill was nothing compared to the skill you needed to refold the roadmap. Refolding a roadmap was a challenge in and of itself, and not one that everyone could master. My mother would always pass the roadmap back and say, please fold this up for me. Because you have to understand, that little booklet that was the size of a large paperback could open up to cover the hood of your car. Because states are huge, and they put every road in the state on the roadmap. So you needed a lot of space to show that. So the little tiny booklet would open up into a huge map that you then had to try to refold into its little booklet form when you were done with it. But roadmaps, gone. Don't need them anymore. Just ask Google. Another thing that no longer exists, actually several things that no longer exist because of the way we take pictures now. The first is camera film. If you wanted to take pictures, you had to buy film for your camera. And the kind of film you bought was based on the kind of camera you had. They used to have something called an Instamatic camera, which would take a little cartridge of film that was already preloaded and pre-wound, and you would just snap that 126 cartridge into your camera. 126 was the number that they associated with that particular cartridge. I don't know why, but that was the cartridge number, and that's the kind you would flip into the camera. You would just flip open the back, the cartridge would fit perfectly into the camera, and you'd close the back, and you'd be ready to take pictures. Now, the film cartridges came with either 24 or 36 exposures. And if you wonder why you don't have a lot of pictures of your parents or your grandparents, 24 and 36 were the standard numbers. So you could only take 24 pictures on a roll. And so you would make those pictures last. You wouldn't take 15 shots to get just the right shot. You would point and click and hope that you got it because you didn't want to waste pictures because film was so damn expensive. Now, if you didn't have one of the little Instamatic cameras which were rather cheap and didn't take the best pictures, but at least you could take a picture. The Instamatic camera only had one setting, which was basically on. You could get flash cubes with it. The little cube would plug into the top of the camera, and each cube had four flashes on it, and you used the flash cube for night photography or dim light photography. But there was no focus settings. There was no zooming. You would just point and click and hope you got a good picture. And if the flash cube went off, you hoped you got a really good picture in low light. There was no way to check, you just hoped. If it was a really good picture that you wanted to make sure that you got, you might take two shots in the hopes that one of them would come out. The other kind of film that you used to be able to get was 35mm film. Now that was film on a roll that you actually had to thread through your fancy camera. My dad had one of those. My dad loved photography. He had a fancy 35mm film camera. But that's one where you had to manually thread it into the camera. It wasn't just a cartridge that was already pre-threaded. That's how you knew you were an experienced photographer. You could thread your film through your camera. Now, the films also had speeds. The speed of the film had to do with how well it would take pictures in different kinds of light. There was 100-speed film, 200-speed film, 400-speed film, 1,000-speed film. What that meant was the higher the number, the better it was for taking low-light pictures. And the better resolution you'd get, depending on the kind of film and the kind of light you were taking pictures in. And of course, the higher the number, the more expensive the film. And yes, you had to worry about that stuff. You had to worry about what kind of film you were using. If you were taking a trip in a museum, for instance, you would use perhaps the thousand speed film. Because you were inside, it was low light, and you might not be able to use a flash. By the way, with the fancy cameras, you didn't actually have a flash cube, which was an easy, disposable way to take pictures with an Instamatic camera. With the fancy cameras, you actually had a flash attachment. And if you had low light, you would have to use that on your fancy camera. 
So if you were a photographer taking pictures in various places, you would have a huge travel case full of different accessories. The flash attachment, the cable to hook it up to the camera, the film boxes. Actually, they weren't really boxes. They were little tubes that the film would fit in. Once you were done with a roll, you would fit it into the tube. And then you take that little tube, which was about two inches tall. You would take that tube to the developer and have your pictures developed. I'll talk about that in a sec, because that's another thing that doesn't exist. Film development. But yeah, taking pictures with the fancy cameras, you would get better pictures. But there was a whole lot of equipment to go with it. But the other thing about the film was you could either ask for film that would take photos or film that would take slides. How many of you have seen a slideshow, an actual slideshow with actual slides? My dad always preferred slides. I don't know why. But a slide was a photo, but it was on a transparent strip of film that you could view either in a slide viewer or with a slide projector. Yeah, you could hold the slide, which was put in a little cardboard frame. You could hold the slide up to the light and see the picture, but it wasn't clear. You actually need to backlight the slide in order to really see it, and you would put it in either a slide viewer or on a projection screen to see it in its full magnification. My dad loved those slides. I don't know why. I always liked pictures, but he loved the slides. And the result of that was he would take pictures and have the slides developed, and then you would have to have a slide projector in order to view the slides. And in order to see all of the slides, or as many of the slides as you could, you would have to have some way to have the slides feed through the projector. So then they had these giant wheels that fit onto the projector, and you would put a slide into each of the 100 slots on these wheels. Then you'd put the wheel on the projector, you'd darken the room, you'd put a screen up, or a white bed sheet if you weren't fancy, or couldn't afford a screen, and you'd project your slides onto a wall, or the screen, or the bed sheet. And that was the only way you could see the pictures that you took if you decided to get slides. I don't know if my dad thought the slides were fancy, or if he thought they gave you better resolution, or if he just didn't want to be bothered with creating photo albums, another thing that no longer exists, at least the way it used to. If you wanted to view your photos, you would have to take them to the film developer. The film developer would then send them to the lab, and you would have your pictures or your slides back in three to five days. Yes, it took three to five days to view your pictures. It's not like today where you take a selfie, look at it and go, ah, let's take two more and see if these work out. When I was growing up, you would take your picture, hope that it came out. You'd have to wait till the whole roll of film was taken, 24 pictures or 36 pictures. Then you'd take that roll out, take that to the developer and wait for another week. Then if you got slides, which is what my dad did, you would have to wait till you had enough slides to put into the wheel before you'd ever sit down and really view them. Yes, you could use the single slide viewer that was available, but you had to make sure you had a viewer, which we did. But it wasn't the same as just flipping open a book and saying, oh, look, here's the pictures. You had to take each slide out, slip it into the viewer, take a look at it, take the slide out, put that back in the box, take the next slide out, and repeat 36 times. That was my dad's preferred way. When I got older, I preferred albums, photo albums. It was a similar process. You still had to go take your film to get it developed. But then you would get 24 pictures or 36 pictures back. You'd flip through them. You'd look at them and go, oh, that one didn't come out so good. And you'd discard that picture. You were out of luck. You didn't have any backup pictures. And then what I would do with my photos after I went through them is I would put them in an actual book. They had special photo albums that you could buy at the stores. Kmart, Sears, any place would sell photo albums. And there were different ways to mount your photos into the album. They had little sticky tabs that you could stick to each page. 
or they developed other kinds of pages where there was a plastic cover on the page. You would put your photo against a sticky surface underneath the plastic cover and then fold the plastic cover back over the pictures and hold them in place that way. And you could fit four to six pictures per page, depending on how big your pictures were. Most pictures were four by six. You could ask the developer to develop them at five by seven if you wanted to, but that was more expensive. And five by seven takes up too many pages in an album, so you didn't want that many big pictures in your album. You wanted to maximize your page space in your album, so four by six was a good standard size. And that's how we viewed pictures. You didn't have anything like Google Photos. You couldn't cast the pictures from your phone up onto your TV screen or onto your computer. You would put your pictures in an album, and then you put the album on the shelf, and when you wanted to go look at them, you'd have to go pull the album out and page through. I still have some of those old albums, and I still page through them on occasion, but it was a huge process to put albums together from selecting the right camera, selecting the right film, getting the film developed, mounting the pictures in an album, and then having the album on your shelves. That whole process is gone now. I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing, it's just different. Another thing that's very different these days, very different from what I grew up with, is our relationship to the telephone. The telephone is with us all of the time now. It's always in our pocket. But we hardly talk on it anymore. We text, we email, we direct message. But actually talking on the phone? Not as big as it used to be. But the things that the cell phone has rendered obsolete? A couple of things, actually. The rotary telephone, I've talked about that many times. I've talked about the process of dialing a phone, putting your finger in the little wheel, spinning it all the way to the end and letting it spin back. That was a process. As I mentioned in the episode that I did on my first date, it was a process that helped build the suspense as you were calling that girl, dialing that phone. Oh my God, oh my God. You could always stop in the middle. Oh no, 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 no. It wasn't just a push of the button and automatic dial. You had to actually dial like seven numbers. The other thing though... The payphone. Payphones were everywhere. Every street corner, every bus station. They were in the hospitals. They were in the airports. They were at gas stations. If you needed to make a call, there were a lot of places you could do it. It wasn't like sitting in your car and just dialing from your car. But if you were on the road and needed to make a call, there was a payphone around. You could find a payphone. You didn't always find a working payphone, but you could find a payphone. The other thing you had to be aware of, though, was always having enough coins for the payphone. Because you would put your coins into the payphone, you'd dial your number, and if it was a local call, it might only cost you a dime or 20 cents or a quarter, whatever the rate was where you were. But if it was long distance, the operator would get on the line and tell you, that'll be $1.75 for the first three minutes. So you'd have to come up with seven quarters in order to make your call. And they wouldn't put the call through unless you put your seven quarters in. And if you went longer than three minutes, the operator would interrupt your call and ask for more money. And if you didn't put the money in, they'd drop your call. So yeah, the payphone experience doesn't exist anymore. That's not necessarily a bad thing either. It's just something that's gone. Another thing that's basically gone that's related to the telephone, the answering machine. Nowadays, every cell phone has voicemail. But back in the late 70s, the early 80s, every house had a phone, every house had a landline, and by the 70s and the 80s, the answering machine became a fixture in pretty much everybody's house. And they were a fixture in the movies, too. How many old movies do you see where there was the answering machine with a blinking red light showing the important message waiting for the hero? Most homes that I knew of had an answering machine. And depending on who lived in the home, they would all have a part in recording the message on the answering machine. Hi, this is Frank. I'm Tom. This is Joe. We're not home right now, but if you'll leave a message at the beep, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Everybody did some wacky message for their answering machine. You don't get that anymore. Nobody does wacky messages for their voicemail. 
Kind of a lost art, the wacky answering machine message. It took me forever to get my parents to get an answering machine, by the way. I had to drag them kicking and screaming into the 20th century. And I don't think it was until the late 1990s that I finally got them to get an answering machine. And they barely used it. I think partly because they couldn't quite figure it out. Between the answering machine and the VCR, technology was a huge burden for my folks. Well, that's a few of the things that no longer exist or have changed dramatically during my lifetime. But that list barely scratches the surface. I'm going through my notes here. There's still a bunch of stuff that I could talk about. There are appliances we don't use, features we don't use, things we don't use anymore that I grew up with that were just part of my life. But I'll save those for another episode. It's funny, we go through our lives and we think, yeah, this is the stuff we use. This will be with us always. It's not the case. I mean, think about it for a second. iPods were huge 10 years ago. Everybody had an iPod who was anybody. How many people still use an iPod? And that's just in the past 10 years. Imagine 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. There was stuff that was huge 40 years ago that a lot of you guys have never even heard of. And we'll be talking about that again in the future, too. But for now, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Storytime. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for listening. You guys are awesome. I can't thank you enough for all of the support you give me and for the fact that you spend time listening to these episodes. It means the world to me. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.